Welcome to the Grove Church Podcast and thegrovekc.com. Our mission as a church is to encourage people to discover true treasure in Jesus Christ. We hope you find today's teaching helpful and encouraging. Thanks for joining us. If you're just joining us for the first time, we've been on a journey through the Gospel of John. And John himself was a young man who was very close to Jesus. And he had a very clear purpose in what he chose to include. And we've called this series Signs. We're going to look at one of those today. But John's gospel and this series are marked by signs. Signs along the way. Okay, so I'm using that journey language very intentionally because John wants us to take us somewhere. Wants to take us somewhere. And these signs we've said from the get-go, those signs are intended to help us believe something very uh, particular, and that is that Jesus is uniquely qualified to give us life. Okay, so big picture, that's where we've been, that's where we're continuing to head, is to, to get this multifaceted picture of the fact that Jesus is uniquely qualified to give us life. And, and John makes it very clear, he's writing so that you will believe. Okay, so if you're here and you're wondering, well, what's this all about? John wants you to believe. He wants you to trust Jesus with your life. Okay, he, he makes no bones about it. That's his very clear intention. And so uh, as we make it halfway to the halfway point of this journey, I want to start today reminding of that purpose, okay, just jumping right into that, because it's going to make it even more startling to see the aftermath of the fourth of these seven signs that we're looking at. Okay, so uh, I want you to listen to something at, at the sort of the end. We're going to start at the end today, but just right here at the end, we're in John 6, and right here at the end... John 6, verse 66, we're told this, From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. They turned back and no longer accompanied him. Okay, so whatever has taken place, whatever it is that we're about to look at today, many of those who had been learning from Jesus, as a result, they decide they no longer want what he's offering. And so the question emerges, how do we get here? And we've been cruising along, and Jesus is doing these amazing things. He's turning water into wine, and he's, he's healing people. He's healing a, a little boy who's on the verge of death. Okay? And then we saw last week he heals a man who had been disabled for 38 years. He's doing these incredible things. But now we've come to this point where people are ready to just up and leave. And we know John wants us to believe. So, I mean, if you're just trying to make this as you know, smoothed over and as, as compelling a, a case as you can, minus the truth, this is the spot where you edit, okay? This is where you start pulling stuff out and going, oh, let's just massage that a little bit. But John doesn't do that. And, and so the, the, this question of how did we get here, and it, it really then leads to why might this be a pivotal event for us as well? That's, that's what we want to look at today, and we're going to answer those questions, and to do that, go back and look briefly at the sign that Jesus performs. Okay, we're going to look at the sign, but more importantly, we're going to examine Jesus' explanation of the sign. So I want you to go back, beginning of chapter 6, and we're told this. This is after he's healed the man who had been disabled for so long, and then teaches on that. It says, after this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. And Jesus went up on a mountain and he sat down there with his disciples. Now, the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. 
And so when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? And he asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Okay, so you get a little bit of a feel. We'll talk a little bit more about some of the background here a little later, but, but you get a bit of a feel for what's going on. Jesus is making his way, and there's this crowd, and, and Jesus decides these people need to eat, and it, it seems impossible. Okay? It seems impossible. Philip, he's going to say, what on earth are you talking about, Jesus? No way we can do this. But Jesus takes the meager lunch of a young man, and he turns it into a feast that we're told feeds 5,000 men. And that's intentional. It's not just 5,000 humans, okay? It's, it's 5,000 men, meaning there are probably close to fifteen to 20,000 people on that mountainside following Jesus when you include women and children that were likely there. So this is a big crowd. 5,000 is a lot. 15,000, 20,000. This is a lot of people. And Jesus says we're going to feed them, and he does with this really meager little lunch. And, and we're told at the end of verse 11 that who everyone ate, okay, all this crowd, this 15 to 20,000, they all ate as much as they wanted. And then it picks up in verse 12 and says, when they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers, there's still more, so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. So at this point, these people have had a feast. And they're trying, like we all do, they're trying to make sense of what's just happened. What have we just witnessed? And so what do they do? Well, they lean on their history. They go back into their history. They go back into a prophecy spoken by Moses who had told them thousands of years before. Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. And this will become important. You must listen to him. And so they say, you know what? This guy who's doing all these things and who's now fed us, he's got to be the one. He's that prophet who was to come. And so deciding who Jesus is, they've now figured out, well, knowing who Jesus is, well, they've got a job for him. They decide they they know exactly what he can do going forward. So verse 15 says, Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So what's just happened here? Well, big picture, when Jesus fed the crowd, he was exposing something. What he's exposing is our common hunger as humans. When he feeds this crowd, he is exposing something in them and he's exposing something in us, which is that we all share a common hunger. And and we're going to look into that a little bit more, but to help us understand how that hunger is exposed, I want you to check out this video, which describes a common way that this common hunger shows up. So take a look. It's happened to the best of us. It's close to dinner time. Your stomach is grumbling. All of a sudden, your significant other's foot tapping becomes too much to bear, 
and you lash out. Your partner has fallen victim to hanger, the grumpiness you feel when you are hungry. And it isn't an excuse, it's an actual physiological and psychological phenomenon. Science has shown that hanger is real. For example, people jab more pins into a voodoo doll of their spouses or choose to blast loud noises at their partner when their blood glucose levels are low. Psychologists think that this may be because hunger impairs self-control. Not acting impulsively takes brain power, and when the brain's low on fuel, it just doesn't have the energy to hold back. Another explanation is that hanger is basically a mistake your brain makes when you're not sure what's causing your body to feel bad. That's because some psychologists think feeling emotions is actually a combination of what's physically going on in your body and what your mind thinks is the reason for that. So if you don't realize what's making you feel off, you might pick a different emotion. When you haven't eaten in a while, you might attribute your rumbling stomach, tiredness, and fuzzy head to other feelings that cause those reactions, like stress or even anger. No, really, this is a thing. Scientists have shown that this can happen. For example, experimenters in a 2016 study irked 236 college students by making the computer they were using crash. Those that had fasted before the test reacted more negatively, seeming to add their hunger-related feelings to the frustration induced by the tech glitch. They even reported more hatred toward the experimenter. Hatred. And that might sound extreme, but it's an honest mistake because hunger and anger look a lot alike physiologically. Some of the same brain regions are activated both when you feel angry and when you're hungry. And that's because the same brain chemical, a tiny protein called neuropeptide Y, both prompts your body to eat when your energy reserves are low and regulates aggression. Actually, it makes a lot of sense, because hunger is your brain's way of signaling the release of hormones that increase the amount of glucose into your bloodstream so that your tissues don't starve. And those same hormones are released in stressful situations, when a boost of glucose could help you outmuscle a predator or run away. And the connection between hunger and aggression might be more than a bodily coincidence. For our ancestors, food wasn't always a reliable thing. Their feelings of hunger were a sign that food was scarce, so whatever they found when hungry was probably worth fighting for. Being hangrier and thus more aggressive about securing meals might have helped them get the fuel they needed to outcompete more complacently hungry rivals. And the legacy of that hanger lives on in us today. So the next time you feel yourself about to bubble over with frustration, remember, it may be your body's way of decoding your empty stomach. So go eat a snack, but not a Snickers. He started with something about Snickers, so you'll have to go back and discover why that's a deal. Not that important. Here's the thing. There are some, some subtle assumptions in that video that are presented as fact, but I enjoyed it personally because I think it illustrates well this idea that what's going on in our stomach has a profound impact on what we do as humans. Right? I mean, our stomachs really do impact what we do, who we are, the kinds of things uh, that our lives are made up of. And, and Jesus understood the role that our bellies play in our lives. And so he recognizes that our hunger for food is really a hunger for at least three key things, okay? At least three key things. So when he exposes our, our common hunger, he, he's addressing our bellies, but he's talking about something more. The first one is safety, okay? Safety. Again, verse 15, it says that they, real, that they are about to come and take him by force to make him king. They're saying, look, this Roman government that oppresses us, we're about to just, whatever posse we've got here, this 15, 20,000, we're all going to go. If Jesus is at the lead, we can handle it. And, and they're motivated by this because the government and its army was a constant threat. 
The, gov- the army could do what they wanted, when they wanted. And so the crowd believes that someone with Jesus' power to heal and provide could easily overthrow the government, and their safety concerns would be over. Okay? I mean, that, so that's part of this motivation. There's, hey, look, Jesus can help take care of our, our feelings of not being safe. And, and there's another piece of that. Okay, so not only is he dealing with safety, not only would they be safe, but they want to be certain. Okay? And that's the second thing, is that he, we all have this common hunger for certainty. You and I love to be certain. We love to be sure. And that's no different for, for this crowd. Often our greatest fear is the unknown. Right? Stepping into stuff that we're, we're unsure about. And Jesus appears to be a sure thing. He's as close to a sure thing as these folks have ever seen. So why not make him king? Even if he doesn't want to be, you're going to be. Why? Because, man, we, we think that you will make things sure and certain. They won't have to be looking over their shoulder, not only wondering if they're safe, just wondering what's going to happen next. So he's addressing this hunger for safety and this hunger for certainty, but there's a third part, and that is our hunger, our common hunger for satisfaction. We all are seeking satisfaction, and you know, as Mick Jagger said, you can't get none. It's hard, okay? But we're told when Jesus heals when, I mean, not when Jesus heals, when he feeds this group, that they ate, again, they ate as much as they wanted until they were full. Now, the disciples, I mean, Philip and the others, they're not sure how they're going to ever come up with enough food to give everybody a snack. And yet, Jesus fills their bellies. It really is extraordinary. I'm not, I'm not camping out there, but it's really amazing. He, he does something just incredible. And these folks, they're following this miracle man, and they're care, they're, they are cared for in a way that they couldn't have imagined. They are satisfied. And that's what Jesus wanted. But I want you to think about this, right? Let's go back from, I mean, we've been there in you know, Israel and 2,000 years ago. Let's come back to today. What would happen? I know you guys don't do things like watch television, but, but what would happen if all the commercials that you watch that were advertising either insurance or food disappeared. They'd probably just make other commercials for other things. But, but there would be a lot of commercials that would go away. And what am I talking about? Well, safety, security, certainty, and satisfaction. And there's any number of other things that, that pop up in advertising. There's this appeal to try to to meet the hungers that we have. And, and when you, you start to have those hungers and all of a sudden a commercial pops up that says, hey, I'll take care of that for you. Well, let me pull out my phone and order that thing or whatever. Just like that crowd on the mountainside, you and I, we hunger for safety, for certainty, and for satisfaction. We do all kinds of things to try to get them. And Jesus knows this. And I want you to, to, to recognize He's not condemning you for that. He knows that, and he's good, and he's generous. He's happy to provide. He provides in this incredible way for these folks. He's not giving them the food and then going, I can't believe you want to eat. And we'll see, he he is about to to flip the script a little bit, but, but he was happy to feed them. But what he wants to do even more than that is point us to something even better than curbing hanger. 
Okay, so what does he do? He jets from the crowd. He, he doesn't let them do what they want to do. And he does another pretty amazing work in the process. You can go read there in John 6. But the crowd is determined, and eventually they catch up with him. Okay? And the time has come for him to then explain the even more wonderful thing that he's been up to all along. Okay? This was pointing to something else. So listen to what he says once they catch up with him. It says, Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. He says, I'm fine, I was glad to, to feed you, but just know you're coming after me, not because you recognize what I was really doing, you just want more food. You just want somebody who can really take care of those things again and again and again and again. And so, again, Jesus intended something bigger. He intended something more than just full bellies. And there are clues that, as we were reading through here, could have alerted us to what was up. Okay, so first off, I want you to notice, the time is the Passover, Okay, and the Passover is a festival, but it's, it's a festival especially marked by a meal. And that meal marked deliverance from danger. It marked God re- saving the Israelites out of Egypt, out of the slavery and oppression of Egypt. The, the, there was this danger and uncertainty and this, this soul-crushing dissatisfaction that they were dealing with there in Egypt. But that meal then points to another miraculous meal that God provides for that, those people. And that's called manna. So there comes a point where the people have been rescued, but they're having some issues, and they, they need God's help, and he provides for them manna. We'll come back to that. And as God's providing for the, them in this miraculous way, they have this mountain of evidence to support that God is good, but the people have a hard time trusting that he is, that he is good, that he is generous. And so they complain. And we hear this in Numbers 11, which you'll, you'll see there's a lot of parallels here. Numbers 11, verse 4. It says, The riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food. The Israelites wept again and said, Who will feed us meat? We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt, along with the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at but this manna. Okay, now... Again, manna, what is it? Well, it's not exactly bread. Um, It's described in Exodus 16 as fine flakes, as fine as frost on the ground. And so I choose to believe that this was like frosted flakes. Like that's what what they were eating was for like many years they were eating frosted flakes. And you could just grind those things up and they'd be really tasty in all kinds of ways. Okay, that's that's what I choose to believe. Um, But what they're saying is that we would rather be slaves eating a variety of food than free people eating the same thing in a variety of ways. And again, you start to recognize, yeah, something off here. And so Jesus, he's got, I mean, there's much more we can say, but he's got all of this in mind. And he's done this particular sign at this particular time for a reason. He's calling out their short-sightedness, and he's drawing their attention and ours back to this history. Because all of that All of that and much more happened to prepare the way and point to this. Jesus can give us what we crave. Jesus wants us to know he can give us what we crave. And so listen to how he describes. We're going to move through this pretty quickly, but I want you to see how he then responds in light of what he's just done. Verse 27, he says, 
Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Well, what can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. Well, what sign then are you going to do so we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? What's going on? What? He just fed 20,000 people with a little lunch, okay? They said, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat, in case Jesus doesn't know the Bible, okay? And then Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. And so I want you to notice there's, there's bookends to this part of Jesus' response. First off, he says, look, he identifies himself as the Son of Man, and then he says, God the Father has set his seal of approval on me. And then at the end, he says, I am the bread of life. And thus begins another set of sevens. There's seven signs. There's seven I am sayings in John's gospel that are also intended to help us believe. Because what Jesus is doing is, is connecting himself to the divine name that he revealed to Moses back in the burning bush when God said, I am that I am. So Jesus says, well, I am. And I am the bread of life. So you have these bookends, and what Jesus is saying is, I am uniquely qualified. Uniquely qualified to give life. I've got the Father's seal of approval. I am the bread of life. And yet, I mean, he's, he's offering something really wonderful, and yet this is met with resistance. And so it says in verse 41, Therefore the Jews started complaining about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they're saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Well, it's a good question. Jesus is game. And so he continues on. And we'll skip down. Verse 47, he, he talks to him. He says, truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And at that, the Jews argued among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have, my, have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the manna your ancestors ate, and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. Now, we could camp out there all day long, okay? And, and in fact, 
One of the things that happened in the early church is that they were persecuted in part because people got the wrong impression that Jesus was advocating for cannibalism, okay? It's a metaphor. That's important. It's a metaphor. But it is meant to provoke. And so he says, what you've just experienced and what I'm offering is better than anything your ancestors received. He says, that bread from heaven it was temporary, and this bread is eternal. And what happens? Well, there, there's even more resistance. They're resisting. They're now turning on one another. Why? Well, because to receive it, you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And they're having a problem with that. And it's a bit understandable, but they really don't want to hear what he has to say. But here's what Jesus' offer is. Okay, it's summed up like this. Verse 47, he says, Truly I tell you, Anyone who believes has eternal life. He's offering. Anyone who believes. This is for you. You can have this. But truly, I tell you, he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. So anyone can have it, but there's only one way to get it. He'll, He'll give us what we crave. But it's not... It's not just however we choose to get it. There's something that comes with that. It is unconditional in terms of what we do, but there are conditions. You don't just get it on your own terms. And so what we find is Jesus can give us what we crave, but that's if you give up what enslaves. Okay? He'll give you what you crave, but you cannot hold on to what enslaves you. Now, the people's response initially, right, is he is the prophet. Let's make him king by force. And here's the deal. They're right. He is the prophet they've been waiting for. And he is a king, but not just of Israel. In fact, when he's about to be crucified, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. So I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So Jesus doesn't let them crown him as king because, not because he's not a king, but because they want a king on their terms. And a king on your terms is not a king. It can be another thing. It can even be a good ruler, but that's not a king. See, what they really want, and and so often so do we, is the kingdom that Jesus can create just minus King Jesus himself. That's what they really want. They want their bellies full. They don't really care how Jesus does it. They don't care that he's the one that's the source of it because he's offending them, as we'll see. And that, guys, when we want what Jesus can offer but not Jesus himself, that, biblically speaking, is idolatry. Plain and simple. It's elevating the created over the creator himself. And so this is why it's important to understand a bit of the meals that lie in the background of this whole encounter, right? The the Passover and the manna. Because, see, after rescuing his people from Egypt, God gives them what we all know as the Ten Commandments. And And culturally, we tend to see this list, at best, 
as the summary of what good people do to keep their noses clean. Now, at worst, the Ten Commandments are viewed as the oppressive statutes of a people trying to force their religion on everyone else. Both are mistaken. Okay? Neither of those is an accurate description of the Ten Commandments. In fact, the Ten Commandments are simply an explanation of how to live in freedom. It's how to live in freedom. As God lays them out, he explains this, Exodus chapter 20. He says, he starts off, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. And then, top priority, do not have other gods beside me. See, the top priority for enjoying the freedom that God secures for them, don't make anything else ultimate. Don't make anything else ultimate. Don't put your living hope in anyone or anything else. That's top of the order if you're going to live out the freedom that God intends to give us. And so the man in the wilderness, well, that was simply a review on the same lesson. The people were told way back, Deuteronomy 8, he humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Remember that prophet? They were supposed to listen to him. They're not listening to this guy, even though they said he's the prophet. Because they want the bread of now, they don't want the bread of heaven. God could have provided cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. He always provides those things. I mean, if he had wanted to, he could have had fish. They asked for fish. He could have had fish flying out of the sea over the land and land. He had quail come down anyway. I mean, he, he could have done any of these things. But what he's doing is he uses our hunger to teach us about what's most important. And our hunger is one of the most accurate gauges of what we really depend upon. And so, despite having witnessed something truly remarkable that day, the crowd has gone from celebrating Jesus to complaining about him to arguing among themselves about him. And now, doubt is even breaking in among those who had been closely following him. John chapter 6, verse 60 says, Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Who can accept it? They're starting to waver. And Jesus doesn't panic. He doesn't freak out because his crowd is getting shaky and he might lose disciples and the numbers will go down. Instead, he pushes for clarity. He wants to make sure they really understand what's going on. Verse 61, it says, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, asked them, does this offend you? That's what it says when it says this teaching is hard. What they're saying is this teaching is offensive. He says, you're offended? He doesn't go, oh, oh, oh hold on. No, no, no. He says, so you're offended, huh? And what's the result of him leaning in like this? You already heard it. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Why? Because he wants to give us what we crave, but he will not let us keep what enslaves us. He just won't. Which leads us, right, practically, okay, what does that mean? It leads us to these two questions. Well, how do we identify our idols and how do we give them up? How do we identify what enslaves us and how do we give it up? So first off, how do we identify our, identify our idols? I can give you 
pages of questions that I've come across over the years that try to diagnose this. But I think we can just go back here into John 6 very quickly and find three that are really important. The first is, you want to know what enslaves you? What do you complain about? You say, oh, I don't complain about anything. I don't believe you. So honestly, what do you complain about? My guess is the answer to that question will uncover something that you're putting too much stock in, that you're treating as ultimate more than the promises of God. Second question. Again, what happens to the the folks here? Well, they start complaining. Then what do they do? Well, they start to argue. So what provokes you to arguments? What provokes you to conflict? What kinds of things happen? What, What is it that leads to the conflict that exists in some of your most precious relationships? Very often you look at and you get to the seat of, well, what was I really upset about? You realize, well, you wanted something because you've put hope and stock in that thing and somebody was denying it to you. In fact, we're told in James, the book of James, that that's where conflict comes from. You want something, you don't get it, so you do all kinds of stuff to get it. So you begin to answer that question, you start to find, uncover a bit of what might be enslaving you. And the third question, what offends you? And specifically, what about what that God has said do you find hard or offensive? Are are there things that the culture says, man, I can't believe you would believe that, but God has said very clearly that it's important? Not because he's trying to deny us good things, but because he wants us to have the very best things. And you go, yeah, but that's hard. I want them to like me. You can't. He'll give you what you crave, but you've got to let go. So I encourage you, take some time this week. Ask yourself these questions. I've been asking myself these questions. And as you identify them then, what's the second thing? Well, how do you give them up? Well, in the words of the great philosopher G.I. Joe, knowing is half the battle, okay? But, but then I think we have some, some real key insight here. Just This is how the, uh, this whole encounter Sort of wraps up, verse 67, Jesus said to the twelve, knowing that some have left, you don't want to go away too, do you? He's not just trying to keep his, his followers, keep his crowd. And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know you are the Holy One of God. You, you want to Give up your idols. Well, first, you got to know. you got to answer Jesus' question. Okay, I'll be honest. And if your answer is, well, yeah, he's the Holy One of God. He is the one with the words of eternal life. Great. If you agree with him, then you express and you cultivate that dependence. And you weed out that enslaving, those enslaving heart commitments by, one, spending regular time with God in Bible reading and prayer. We talk about this quite a bit. This is part of how we let go of these things. Because what will happen is we'll realize, oh, I'm committed over here, and I need to let go of that thing. Because I'm reading God's word. I'm learning what he thinks and what he, he says. And then we cultivate other habits that are intended to help us grow independence upon God. Right? Other habits that will, will expose our dependence on other things, but also are intended to help us grow dependent upon the Lord. And the one that I want to just highlight for us today related to what we've been looking at, is this idea of fasting. Okay, now, he mentioned fasting in that video, 
But here's a, and lots of people fast, you don't have to be a Christian to fast, but when we're talking about Christian fasting, here's a great definition. Fasting is a temporary renunciation of something that is in itself good, like food, in order to intensify our expression of need for something greater, namely God and his work in our lives. Okay. So that's what we're talking about. It's not saying, well, food, you. No. It's understanding, man, this is a good gift. God will give it, provide, but it's not as good as the giver. And so would I set, that, would I set myself apart from that thing for a time in order to cultivate a greater hunger for God himself? And so I want to encourage you, I want to encourage us to develop in this discipline, in this habit. And, and for a couple reasons. One, for your own cultivating dependence upon the Lord, and for us together as a church to cultivate this. So to that end, I'm not going to launch into another sermon talking about fasting, but I want to invite you next Sunday afternoon. I'm going to do a fasting workshop, okay, Sunday, March 27th, 4 to 5 p.m. right here. We'll do a fasting workshop, workshop and talk about, just in an hour, what are some key ideas related to fasting as a Christian spiritual discipline. I'd love for you to come and be a part of that if you want. I'll also be creating some resources because here's what I would like to see us do. Um, I'd like to see us as a church, starting the 28th or starting that week, begin to fast for the next 10 weeks, one meal a week. Just one meal a week. I want to ask you to join in. You guys that are a part of this home crowd, you want to be a part of moving the mission to grow forward, to fast with us for one week because... I mean, for, for one meal, for 10 weeks, because at the end of that 10 weeks, we're doing something that we've begun to let you know about, and we're going to have much more detail on. Um, but June 6th through 9th, we're going to do something called Maker Camp, okay? And this is very basic. We're working on graphics and all that stuff. But here's what it is. It's a camp for kids and teens to grow in creativity and appreciation for their creator. And so this place is going to be turned into Maker Camp Central, June 6th through 9th in the evenings. Um, and we're looking forward to a great opportunity to reach into our neighborhoods, reach into our friends and families that, uh, that don't know Jesus and invite them to learn about him and what it means to, to walk with Jesus, but specifically to, to gain skill and all kinds of cool stuff. Okay? So lots more coming on that, but in preparation for that, we want to pray and ask the Lord and fast and ask the Lord to bless those efforts of outreach. And so we'll have more for you on this, but I want to encourage you to jump in with us. Okay, now... Maybe you came in here, and you were hangry, and you're like, man, all right, we're almost to lunch. But maybe you came in, you were feeling full. Jesus wants you to know that you can be forever safe, certain, and satisfied. But come on his terms. He is the bread of life, and he will give you what you truly crave. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Thank you for your word. It's a joy to get to read it, study it, learn more about who you are, what you've done. I'm amazed by these signs, but I'm amazed by the ways in which you have woven all of history together to point to Jesus, and that Jesus is the way pointing us back into relationship with our maker. I pray if there are any here who have yet to believe, like Peter says, that you have the words of life, that they would continue to consider that. I pray for us who do believe that, or that you would root out the idols that enslave us, the things that, the ways in which we are tempted to want to go back into Egypt where things seem more certain, 
but really just enslave. God, guide us for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray that you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at thegrovekc.com for more ways to connect with us. And join us again next week for another podcast from The Grove Church. Have a great day. Thank you.